There's every possibility of missing the point due to all of the activity around us around Christmas time. And I'm really serious. We're harassed by distractions all the time at this time of year. From the moment that the stores open at 3 a.m. on Black Friday, the rat race that we know as the holiday season sets in upon us, and there's no stopping. There's shopping, there are family traditions, there's a lot of simple sentimentality, there are parties, there's Santa and his elves, and Christmas music, and movies, and caroling, and yes, there's more shopping, and the list goes on and on and on. The fear is that we miss the point in the midst of all of this that we're engaged in in the world. Somehow Christmas comes and Christmas goes, and yet we remain strangely unaffected by it all. Just kind of a dash to the finish, the new year arrives, and somehow it just kind of passed. Well, one powerful antidote to the poison of the endless December distractions is the season of Advent um, that we have been in for the last few weeks and are, are finishing up until Christmas time. Advent slows us down. It slows us down and it refocuses our attention so that we can anticipate with, the, with full significance or the full significance of the momentous events of Christmas morning. We stop and we wait. We light candles. We read the scriptures in a new and a focused way. We've been doing that together as a community in this church. And all of this is meant to ensure that when this moment finally comes and arrives on Saturday morning, that we're ready. That it doesn't just pass us by in yet another frantic Christmas season. We're anchored in the story that leads up to this morning. The real story. Not the story, not all the counterfeit stories that are on offer in the rat race around us in our culture, but the real story that is being told in this season of Advent. We're ready to celebrate, to appreciate, and to glory in the fullness of what is coming and of who is coming in Jesus. So on this final Sunday of Advent at Church of the Cross, we turn our attention to this last of the songs to the coming king in Luke's gospel found in Luke 2 and found on the lips of a man named Simeon. Never mind for a moment that his song was sung after the birth of Jesus. That's beside the point for our purposes tonight. It tells with greater clarity what this coming of Jesus was all about. Simeon, this righteous and devout man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, is a faithful guide for our Advent anticipation and preparation. He takes up in his arms this baby Jesus and sings a song of jubilant praise. The subject of the song is Jesus. The theme of the song is salvation. We're told in the passage before the song in verses 25, 26, and 27 that that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the time when the words of Isaiah 40 would actually ring true in the ears of he and his fellow Israelites. Comfort, comfort my people. This is that Advent longing and waiting. For the present day of Israel, as we've heard uh, countless times at Church of the Cross over this fall, as we've been preaching through Luke, was not one of consolation, but rather it was one of trial and of tribulation, of frustration, of exploitation. Anything but the comfort that Isaiah had proclaimed. God had promised something to his people, but that promise had not yet come. The promise had not yet arrived. Sound familiar? 
Sound familiar to our own lives? But in the midst of the trial of waiting, Simeon waited faithfully. He waited devoutly. He waited righteously for God to act. That's not what I'm going to focus on in this song tonight, but that is certainly a lesson for us from this passage, that you have this man who's, who's waiting upon the consolation of Israel, described as devout and righteous. In his waiting, Simeon was unique. There had been a promise given to him that the Holy Spirit had made clear to him, revealed to him in some way that we're not told exactly how, that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. He had this promise. And he walks into the temple in the Spirit, Luke is careful to point out, and he takes up this baby Jesus in his arms. So this wasn't just any baby. Um, All babies are great, and I can say that with uh, extra emphasis today, the first Sunday after Claire's birth on early Monday morning, 1228 Monday morning last week, right after I was with you all last week, and she's here with us tonight. All babies are great. All babies are cute and innocent and soft. But nobody came up to Mandy and to me at uh, Brigham and Women's last Monday and said, this child is appointed for the rising and fall of many in Massachusetts. (laughs) There was something incredibly special going on in this baby that Simeon held in his arms. Something unique, something one of a kind, something that could not be repeated. In the spirit, God must have spoken very clearly to Simeon as he walked into the temple that day. God told him, this is the one. This is the one you've been waiting for. There was no doubting anymore. There was no uncertainty. So with Jesus in his arms, Simeon offers this song of praise. It's a song of salvation. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This brings a first bit of clarity and focus to our distractedness in this season of December. This first bit of focus, this focus on the word salvation. Salvation. What we're celebrating in the first Advent, what we rejoice in on Saturday morning this weekend, and what we're longing for in the second Advent are the same thing. Salvation. Rescue. Redemption. Renewal. This is God's work. This is God's business. This is something that none of us can bring about. But this is God's work in God's way. We don't have a part to play. It's not that we're not um, privy to this work of God. And not that we're not actually involved. And even quite intimately. But we aren't the soloist in the act. Far from it. Salvation is God's primary work. It's his primary work in the theater of creation. He saves God saves. He's a mighty Savior. And He saves us from death and from sin and from all of the anti-life forces, stories, pressures, anxieties that we face in our world. But this question of needing salvation is an open one in our culture, isn't it? Do we really need a Savior? Really? Really? It's an honest question. Do we really need someone to come to our aid? Someone to get us out of the mess that we're in? So much of our world rejects this idea of needing help from the outside. We can handle it on our own. It's interesting that so many of us, and history shows us this again and again in every age of humankind, 
that so many of us turn to anything other than God for salvation, for rescue. We turn to military might. That's a common one, maybe not so much for us today, at least in America, but it's a common one throughout the history of mankind. We turn to politics. We turn to scientific or technological advancement, to the myth of progress. We turn to medicine and the extension of human life um, in some ways in a really unnatural way. We turn to wealth. The development and the progression of Western culture is in a very real way our collective attempt as humankind at overcoming the problem of man and the burden that we all feel at one level or another. So I owe this to Jonathan Kofit, who uh, studies intellectual history at BU, but he turned me on to a man named Jacques Barzun, a scholar um, of intellectual history and, and of kind of ages of humankind. And he describes the unifying task of the Romantic period at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, as the problem of creating a new world on the ruins of the old one, while acknowledging the greatness and wretchedness of man. The problem of creating the new world on the ruins of the old one. In short, this is an attempt at salvation. And it's not unique to the Romantic age, but it's really the, the, the work of every age of humankind. We tackle the same problem, the problem that we all face, that we all understand implicitly at some level in our being as humans in a broken and fallen world. But we do it with different philosophies, with different attempts and presuppositions. But we make the same effort at fixing the same problem, age after age after age. But our Advent cry, come Lord Jesus, makes absolutely no sense apart from a keen awareness of our dependency, of our limitedness, of our impotence at this project of salvation. Come Lord Jesus makes no sense apart from this insight that we are unable to save ourselves. Try as we may, hard as, we, as hard as we work at it, we're unable to do it. And this is obviously the constant testimony of the Word of God. Psalm 49.7, just for one example, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. And we could go a million other places in the Scriptures to make this same point. And I want to say that this, this reality, this biblical reality that we cannot save ourselves is something that deep down in the heart of every man and woman rings true. I believe this with all of my heart, that this rings true. It's part of who we are as human beings, to know this at some deep level. The rest of life is just a mirage. We're, we're, we're covering over what we know to be true um, instinctively, almost at the level of our conscience. Um, some of you know I've been reading a book by Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death, published in 1974. He was a cultural anthropologist and a study of, of humankind and of the problem of man. And this is what he's getting at when he writes, not from a Christian perspective, but he writes that neurosis is the result of our refusal to recognize our cosmic dependence. Neurosis is the result of our refusal to recognize our cosmic dependence. That's a secular way of saying what the biblical witness has said from the beginning, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are dependent in some way, shape, or form. We will not be our own saviors. We will not be our own masters. But it's such a hard step to take for us. It's the, it's the giant leap. It's so, so far, that distance. 
But it's absolutely required if we're to, to really get the Christmas miracle of this Saturday morning. And Simeon pulls all of this into focus for us as we close out Advent, that salvation is the event of Christmas morning. It is the anticipation of Advent, the season of Advent. Love is the motivation. The baby, Jesus, is the instrument. The design and the glory is God's. Will we miss it? Do we really need it? Is this both a source of our praise and the energizing impetus of our prayers? Come, Lord Jesus. This great event of salvation. The next point of focus that Simeon brings regards the scope of this event in this baby Jesus. It's for all people. For all people. There are no exceptions. See verse 32. That Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. That covers everyone. The Gentiles. The nations. Israel. God's chosen people. This covers everybody. It is indeed for Israel. But it's not merely for Israel. For God's chosen people. This baby. This salvation. Is for all people. While Joseph and Mary had heard many wonderful and astonishing things about this baby to come, both before his birth and at his birth and immediately after his birth, this was likely the one thing in Simeon's song that caused their marveling that we read about in verse 33. That this Savior to be born was not just a Savior for the people of God who had been so longing for him to come, but he would be a light For revelation to the Gentiles. A light to shine through all the world. All along the plan was that God would bless the world through his chosen people. This was the point of calling Abraham in Genesis 12. That through him all nations would be blessed. So this had become obscured in some ways over the course of Israel's history. But it had never disappeared. And finally, in Jesus' birth, we get the taking up and the fulfillment of this theme of God's rescue of all the world. Through his people Israel and through their representative Messiah Jesus, God would rescue all. Simeon is the first to bear witness to this universal reach of God's salvation, at least explicitly. We see it in in verse 10 of chapter 2 in the angels, as they say, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. But Simeon gives this explicitness in his song later on here in chapter 2. It's this reality that lies behind the wonder of Christmas morning. In this little baby, the world would be made right. The nations who had henceforth been living in darkness had a light dawn upon them in the birth of this baby boy. In other words, he's not just Simeon's savior. He's not just Mary's and Joseph's savior in special pride and joy. But Jesus truly is the hope for all humanity. Past, present, future. All humanity. And he's not just the hope, but he's the only hope for all humanity. This is backed up again and again, obviously, in the biblical witness. Jesus is not some tribal savior, not some tribal deity. He's not come from some particular region of the world only. Rather, he is the world's true Lord. It's rightful heir, the rightful king coming to his own to rescue and to renew. He is, as John 1 verse 9 says, the light that enlightens every man. Jesus, the universal savior. 
Now, it's this universal scope of Jesus' salvation and, his, and the exclusive claim that he is the way to salvation. Acts 4, verse 12, There is no, under, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved than this name of Jesus. It's this that has been the stumbling block of so many in our world, and particularly in our culture, in our world today, where the one wrong thing to say is that there is only one way. Where tolerance rules the day, and tolerance not in the way in which it's, um, the word actually means, but in the way in which it, it entails a censorship on anything that claims to have a universal appeal and claim. It's been deemed arrogant and insulting, and offensive. And I have to say, in agreement with those um, descriptions of this universal reach of the salvation of Jesus, that it's often those of us who bear this claim to the world and do so in a way that is smug and superior and proud and condescending that give it this kind of repugnant odor to the world around us. And I think we need to own that and to claim that as people in the church. And in anything but a Christ-like way, we sometimes proclaim this. But consider for just a moment how the light for revelation to the Gentiles actually shines to the world. He takes up the cross. Jesus does. This baby. He is opposed. When our fallen nature has done its worst to the King of Kings, to the author of life, When nature's light will not even shine in shame for what we have done to the author of light. It's at that moment of utter darkness that the light of the glory of God shines most brightly into the world. As John's gospel makes clear, it is the moment of Jesus' being lifted up on the cross that is the moment of his glorification. The moment at which the love of God is shining most brightly into a world of darkness where the sun will not even shine. This is the way that that exclusive claim is made known to the world. So I want to say something to all of us that if you follow Jesus, if you anticipate his coming, come Lord Jesus, then what you believe in saying that is that for your neighbors, for your family members, for your friends, for your co-workers, for anyone that you know or that you see or that you read about or that you um, hear about, your hope for them is to know this one called Jesus. Your hope for them is to know this Savior whose salvation reaches even to you and to them. But the way in which this hope is made known is not through a a prideful ruling over and demanding into submission, but through the taking up of your own cross in the same love that Jesus took up His and proclaiming through your own wounds and service and laying down of your life this love that He has given to you and to all. The light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Salvation is reaching to all. This is the glory of Simeon's song. God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to all creation. This is the Christmas song and the Advent expectation. This is what we long for as the people of God. But Simeon's song has a footnote to it. Uh, To use kind of a musical analogy, it's a footnote given in a minor key. 
(laughs) with a foreboding tone to it. Will everybody accept this universal reach, this light for revelation to the Gentiles? Will everyone join in Simeon's song? Will everyone join in the Christmas celebration and the Advent expectation? The Advent of God's Messiah is celebrated, but it's celebrated in Luke 2, in Simeon's song, with, on the horizon of conflict, of opposition. To prevent a premature, triumphalistic celebration, Simeon warns Mary, pulls her aside and warns her, and in so doing warns us that opposition is ahead. Though universal in its scope, this bearer of salvation is not a universalist. It's a key distinction. We've mentioned the cross. Mentioned the difficulty of accepting our need for salvation. We want to save ourselves. We want to go our own way. And this reality is the source of the conflict to which Simeon points Mary at the end of this passage. It's a conflict which which Jesus would experience in excruciating, God-forsaken circumstances. And it's a conflict that we too, as his disciples, will continue to experience until he comes again. And it's one of the reasons that we cry out all Advent long and all year long, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Because this love shown for us on the cross is a love that is opposed. Jesus will have us, all of us. He's come for all of us. But he will not have merely a part of us. He's come for all of us. But he won't have just a part of you or a part of me. He will bring grace indeed, but he will also bring truth. And this truth about who we are will mean opposition, resistance, and rejection. One thinker said it this way, Men reject him because he unmasks their lies and hypocrisy, because he cannot be bribed. They would be willing to place him next to the gods, to offer him incense, even a little money to cleanse themselves of sin. They would like to have him as a statue, but not as a man, not so immediate and provoking. He comes among us and calls us to follow him. But we resist. We hold back. We say we don't need his help. Mary has already sung about those that Simeon warns her about in these final verses of our passage. These are the high and mighty. Remember Mary's song? The self-sufficient, the self-saviors, the ones who can do it on their own, the rich, the winners of the world's games that refuse to lay down their trophies and to align themselves with the King of Kings with the one trophy that truly matters. So Simeon's song brings us to this place of focus at the end of our Advent journey, which prepares us for this morning that we're anticipating this coming Saturday. And it's a story in a song of salvation, a salvation that is so wonderful and so grand and so great that it extends its reach to all men and all women throughout all of time in all the world. Will you sing that song this season? Do you know that love 
through which this universal appeal comes? Or are you distracted, weary, waking up on New Year's Day going, what just happened? This is the story that we celebrate as the people of God this season. This is what we anticipate. This is what we cry out for. Come, Lord Jesus. It's not original, but it's profound. It's life-transforming. It's all we could ever hope for. This salvation for all. I pray that we would know it this final week of Advent. And I pray that we would celebrate this with great joy as we remember this baby that's born on Christmas morning. Amen.